Well, it's a privilege to worship with you all again this evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. We sang from the first half of this psalm earlier. And as we read through the 28 verses of this psalm, notice the dynamics of it. Notice the changes that take place within. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children." But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes... O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Thus sends the reading of God's word. Let's bow our heads and ask that God would bless this sermon. 
Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. As we enter into this conversation that Asaph has in this psalm, we pray that you would help us to see where we ought to carry our doubts into your sanctuary where we can be reframed according to your word and according to the true reality of the judgment that will come when you send Christ again. We pray that you would help us to await that day, fixing our eyes on that coming day when Christ will be revealed in glory. Would you give us a desire to hear from Christ's own lips in that day? Well done, my good and faithful servant. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some psalms that we love because of their devotional content. For example, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We love the richness of the imagery in Psalm 23. But then there are other psalms that we love because of their dynamics. Meaning the change or the movement that takes place within the psalm. And Psalm 73 can be considered a dynamic psalm. It is a psalm that takes us on a journey. It begins actually with a conclusion in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel. But then it moves to a meditation on the wicked and their prosperity in this present evil age. That's verses 2 through 12. And then it moves to Asaph actually letting us in on his personal doubts about whether it was worth devoting his life in service to God. That's verses 17 through 22. And then it moves to an expression and at the conclusion of the psalm, an expression of absolute devotion to God. And that's found in verses 23 through 28. And we get to follow Asaph on his journey through it all, amazed that an eminent worship leader of Israel would be so brutally honest about his personal, spiritual, and mental struggle concerning how the wicked prosper in this present evil age. That's really what this psalm is all about, isn't it? How does faith deal with injustice in this present age? Why do the righteous live lives so often of suffering and trial and turmoil while the wicked live long lives of ease? Is it really worth being a devoted Christian in light of these facts? And what Asaph will say at the end is, absolutely. As long as we get reframed according to the word and the worship of God who will judge the world. Now, before Asaph begins to speak about his own personal story and struggle, he begins this psalm with a truth statement. 
Look down at verse 1 and you'll see this. It's, it's almost as if Asaph is saying, before I tell you my unsanctified thoughts, I want you all to know my conclusion first. And here's my conclusion in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Notice how Israel here does not have purely ethnic connotations. Israel is further clarified by the second line, to those who are pure in heart. And what does it mean to be pure in heart before God? Well, those who are pure in heart live lives of devoted service and worship to God, and they seek to live their lives in his fear as devoted servants. And then Asaph says, having stated my conclusion first... Let me tell you what happened next. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. I almost lost my faith. That's what Asaph is saying here. As for me, my feet almost came to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped Asaph is saying that his own purity of heart, his own devotion to God was almost lost. And what was the reason for that? Look at what he says next. He says, for. So here's the reason that his feet came close to stumbling. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant. What does it mean to be envious? Envy, according to the dictionary, is a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or fortunes. And Asaph is looking at the wicked, and this feeling of discontentment arises within his heart. Why does a feeling of discontentment arise within his heart on account of the wicked? For this reason, they aren't living difficult lives. Because rather than receiving God's judgment for their pride and arrogance, they were flourishing in Asaph's day. He says here, I saw the peace of the wicked. The Hebrew word there is the word shalom, meaning I saw the well-being of the wicked. I saw the wicked flourishing rather than having a hard time in life like I am currently, Asaph is saying. The wicked are prospering. The wicked are flourishing. The wicked are ruling. And he thinks of the time leading up to their deaths. And he says here there are no pains in their deaths. And that means rather than dying violently under God's judgment, their deaths are relatively peaceful. They don't seem to have pangs of conscience that affect them as they slip into the sleep of death. Even after living a life of sin, even after abusing others, they do not seem to be afflicted. Isn't there something wrong with that? Asaph says. He says, look at their bodies. While they live, their bodies are not gaunt and skinny like the poor and malnourished, but they have food in abundance so that their body is fat, Asaph says. And I don't think we should think 
of morbid obesity here, but rather these wicked wealthy have bodies that are strong and stout. He says, they are not in the trouble of men, meaning it seems as I look on the life of the wicked wealthy, the common toil of eking out an existence of working and toiling and sweating, these things don't seem to characterize them. They aren't plagued with mankind, he says. They are immune to the common troubles of men. And even though they lack all of these difficulties in their life, what is their response to that? Do they thank God for the ease of life? No, the the ease of their life actually leads them to pride. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. It is the thing that they conspicuously wear around their neck, as one commentator said. And a garment of violence covers them. When you look at them, you do not see them treating their fellow men peacefully. Instead, you see them acting with brutality towards fellow men, and they seem to get away with it. Their eyes bulge from fatness, Asaph says, meaning whatever they want is what they take for themselves. Their lives are characterized by material affluence. They are characterized by gluttony. And then it says, literally, the thoughts of their heart cross over, meaning that they transgress the bounds of God's law. Their imagination runs towards evil and doing evil things, and they don't do it secretly. It says here, they mock and speak with evil and speak oppression from an elevated place. From their positions of power and authority, they say evil things with their mouths. Their tongue, Asaph pictures, is strutting through the earth, strutting with these great boasts that they make. And what does Asaph say in response? This was hard for me to understand when I saw this. Look at what it says in verse 11. Notice what the wicked say. How does God know? How does God know what I'm doing? They say, is there knowledge with the Most High? That's a rhetorical question, meaning of course not. He doesn't know what we're up to. And we are going to get away with this. And then Asaph sums it up in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They have increased in wealth. The rich have gotten richer, and now they live lives absent of difficulty, dying in peace to the end, living lives of sin. And yet I'm over here struggling. And this causes Asaph to begin to wonder, is devotion to God really worth it after all? Isn't this surprisingly honest for one of the worship leaders of Israel? In his unsanctified meditation, he uses the same word that he did at the beginning. He says, truly, in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, if the wicked have it so good in their wickedness, why am I over here so devoted to purity of life? 
If the wicked have it so good in their evil, why am I so devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and to living a life of holiness? Especially when every day I'm chastened by the hand of God. Look at what Asaph says. He says, all day long I have been stricken and I have been chastened every morning. I look at their lives. It seems like ease. It seems like affluence. It seems like greed. It seems like they get away with it. I'm over here devoted to purity of life, devoted to the service and the worship of God, devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet every day I have been chastened. So what gives? That's a drama of Psalm 73. Now note what Asaph says in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak in this way. In other words, if I would have vented these unsanctified thoughts publicly and really meant them and never come to a a true realization of what I was saying. What does he say? I would have betrayed your sons. If I really would have come to this conclusion, what would have been the case? I would have betrayed the generation of your people, God's children. He would have betrayed the ones who are pure heart. And so Asaph recognizes that certain ways of thinking and certain ways of speaking, if they are really meant, will betray God's saints. He knows the public ramification of saying these things and meaning them. He realizes that if he comes to that conclusion there are going to be issues for the rest of the people of God. And this is something that I wish those who apostatize from faith and devotion to God would truly understand. It's not just them apostatizing from God. It is actually them betraying through their evil and through their love of the world, the saints of God who have longed and waited for Christ's appearing on the clouds of heaven. So Asaph is saying, truly God is good to Israel. Here are my unsanctified thoughts. But let me tell you, I was troubled by this. I knew I couldn't vent this and really mean it. But it troubled me. And he didn't know how to solve it. He was terribly vexed. He is wondering, how do I square injustice with my faith? I know that I cannot betray God's people. So where do I go from here? And he says, it was troublesome in my sight. Until. See that? It was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Where did Asaph find the answer to his unsanctified thoughts? Where did he find the answer to these troublesome thoughts that he had within his soul? It was when he entered the temple precincts for the worship of God. And there he began to see things as he ought to see them. He says here, Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. 
Then I discerned the end of the wicked when I came into the sanctuary of God. Now the question is, what is the correlation here between Asaph entering the temple precincts to perform Levitical worship and his discerning the destiny of the wicked? What's the connection between those things? Well, ask yourself this. What was the main focal point of Israelite worship on a daily basis? It was the morning and evening sacrifice, wasn't it? And so he enters the temple precincts, and what does Asaph see? He sees live animals coming into the temple precincts. He sees them getting their neck cut. He sees blood flowing out, and he says, this is the judgment of God over the wicked in this life. He sees the reality of God's holiness as he views these animals bleeding at one time, bawling, coming into the temple and being silenced because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Asaph says, ah, here is the end and destiny of the wicked. Here. I see God's judgment displayed before me. And even if the wicked have not received their comeuppance yet, no doubt the just and holy God will slay the wicked and break their teeth with blows. Psalm 3. Look at verse 13. Surely, Asaph says, and this is the third time, that word has been used in this psalm. Surely, he says, you set the wicked in slippery places. Just as the animals would be led to sacrifice through blood. And this relates to the second verse above where Asaph said, As for me, my feet had almost slipped, but now I go into the temple precincts. I see the reality of sacrifice and of God's judgment and of slaughter. And what do I think? Confronted by the holiness of God, he realizes the one whose feet truly slip in slippery places where they fall headlong are those who are wicked and wealthy. Notice what he says. You cause them to fall. They come to an end. They are finished from terrors. I'm being reworked according to the worship of the God of Israel. Like a dream from awakening, they are forgotten. And when you awake, Asaph says to God, meaning when, when you, O oh God, stir yourself up to judge, you despise their image and God slaughters what he despises. So isn't this fascinating that Asaph, in the midst of his trial and struggle, goes into the worship of Israel. He is recentered by the worship of Israel. He sees the sacrifices. He hears the instrumentation. He hears the singing of psalms. He hears the readings from God's word. And he is reminded, ah, this is true reality. Not what I simply see with my eyes, but what I know according to God's word and what will one day be when God acts in judgment. That's reality. That's truth. And this often happens with us. 
Sometimes we are having a mental struggle in our minds with the way that things are in the world. We're thinking about something in a specific and sinful way, and then we enter into the worship of God, and what happens? We are recentered according to God's truth. We are transformed in our understanding so that we begin again to take every thought captive to Christ so that we realize the wrongness of the way we were previously thinking. Asaph recovers from his doubts and he confesses to God, these were bad thoughts to have. He says, in effect, back when I was troubled by those thoughts, when my heart was bitter, uh, when I was pierced, it says literally, in my kidneys by the reality of the wicked wealthy in the core of my being, here's what was really going on. I was being senseless. I was being ignorant. I wasn't thinking rightly. It was not your justice, but my wrong-headed thinking that was the problem. That's what he says. And let's take note from this, brethren, that faith confesses where it is senseless and ignorant. And when, f- when it is taught to think correctly, it confesses where it thought incorrectly. Asaph says, I was like a beast before you. I was acting like an irrational animal in verses 2 through 12. How could I have done that? But he confesses it. And after that confession comes the beautiful expressions of absolute devotion to God. Having been recentered by Israelite worship, he says, Of course, how could I have ever thought that way when this is the truth, when this is the reality? We need to note this that God does not leave us or forsake us because we sometimes think in wrong and sinful and unbiblical ways. You see that? It's after we find out how wrong we've been, however, that we are supposed to affirm how blessed we are. We are tempted to desire the lives of the rich and famous. We are to reinstate the truth that God will judge the wicked for their lifestyles and that he calls us to be holy. And we should also say, I was not thinking correctly then, but nevertheless, now I'm thinking correctly. And now that I'm thinking correctly, whom have I in heaven but you? And who on earth do I desire beside you? Do you see what Asaph says here? I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me into glory. Brethren, the pure in heart shall see God. This is what it says. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me into glory. Here is the afterlife and everything about our lives here must be guided by this understanding that glory is coming. God receives the pure in heart there, just as Christ said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And that godliness is not just a value for the present age, but Paul says that godliness is a value into the age 
to come. Every time on Sunday that we come here and are counseled by God, guiding us, not in hurtful ways, leading to death, but leading to life everlasting on that path that leads to glory. Now, at the beginning, I said we love Psalm 23 because it's so beautiful and devotional. Listen again to what Asaph says here. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Well, just earlier in the psalm, wasn't Asaph saying, I was envious of the wicked? But here he says, now I know the truth again. I'm refreshed by the truth. I desire nothing on earth besides you. If I had the whole worlds, but I was far from God, what would I really have? I would really have nothing without him. I may have envied the wicked for a moment, but by faith I discern that I desire nothing on earth but God. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And here's the core and central thing Asaph has learned. Behold, those who are far from you will perish. That's what Psalm 1 says, doesn't it? God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And God silences all those who commit adultery from him, spiritual adultery. And so even though Asaph, in his mind, temporarily thought of why am I so devoted to God? Now he reinstates the truth. He is devoted to God because without God, he will be silenced. But what does the believer say? The believer turns to God and they say, the nearness of God is my good. As long as I have God near to me, I have everything I would need. Do not envy the lives of the wealthy. Why would you make wealth and position your refuge when God is the true refuge? And so Asaph closes the psalm with worship. And this is where we ought to end too. We may sometimes stumble in our minds and think unsanctified, sinful thoughts, but do not neglect entering into the presence of God every week to be recentered by the worship of God where things that are muddy become clear. When reality that is hard to understand becomes real to us and where we say to God, I will tell of all your works. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Don't look back on the things on which you are now ashamed and long for them. Because, Paul says, the end of those things is death. 
But now that you have been set free from sin in Christ and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do not envy the lives of the wicked wealthy. See things as you ought to see them properly and according to God's word. And remember these words from 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the what? For the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And Peter says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But listen to what he says next. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We need that reminder. We need to be recentered by the worship of God to see things as they really are so that we say godliness is of great advantage in every way. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for the meditation of Asaph in Psalm 73. We thank you for the dynamics of this psalm that leads us on a journey from the conclusion of verse 1. Surely you are good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. We thank you for showing us the honesty of a man struggling with the wicked, wealthy, and the world prospering and flourishing. We thank you for the honesty of a man who would express his doubts about whether devotion to you was really worth it in life, to recovery from that doubt, to a final expression. I was like a beast towards you, like an irrational animal, but Lord, truly we know now that the nearness of you, our God, is our good. We pray that as we go out into another week, you would help us to be recentered by the reality of your judgment and of those who will have to give an account to the judge of the living and the dead. Oh, Lord, help us to fight this week for sanctification through the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might look forward with joy and run with haste to that day when Christ will be revealed from heaven. We ask this all in Jesus' name.